0: Thank you, worship team. Can we honor our worship team today? So good, so good. So I bet you never thought if you're new to Church Alive that you'd see Home Alone in Church, but here we are. Home Alone is one of my favorite movies ever. And in this scene, we see the two thieves coming to rob the house. And if you're not familiar with the movie, Kevin is left home alone. His family goes on a trip to Paris. And there's many families in that neighborhood that are traveling for the holidays. So these thieves have figured out which homes are going to be empty. And they're just clearing house. So Kevin gets left home alone. But he knows that these thieves are coming. And so he's a pretty smart young kid. And he knows, well... They're not going to rob the house if they think people are here. So he goes into MacGyver mode and he gets a train set set up. He's got a cardboard cutout of Michael uh, Jordan on the bulls. It's like all of this crazy stuff. He's got a mannequin on a record player, ropes and everything like that. People looking like they're drinking and having a good time. And he's got music on and he's got the lights on and the Christmas tree is on. And from the outside, it looked like that house was full of community. From the outside, it looked like that house was full of joy. From the outside, it looked like it was secure. From the outside, it looked like it was filled with life. And so the thieves that came to steal something, they were—they decided not to after they saw what the house looked like. But you see, the shadows that they saw in the windows, they were just that, they were shadows. And shadows don't accurately represent what casts them. You might be able to see the outline if it's really clear, and you might get an an inkling about the shape, but you have no clue about the thing's color. You have no clue about its texture, about its profile, about even its emotion. Shadows don't tell you everything that you need to know. And, you know, we're talking about shadows in this sense, in a, in a real sense, in a physical sense. But there's also shadows that we see in literature, in TV shows, and movies. It's called foreshadowing. And I don't know if you've ever seen a movie where you get to the end and you realize something that happened 15 minutes in and you're like, ah, I got it. Because that, if you've ever watched M. Night Shyamalan, The Sixth Sense, the whole movie is foreshadowing. Yes. Right? It's something that happens early on that's pointing to something that's coming but it doesn't give it all away just yet. It's not exactly clear, and you don't sometimes see it in its fullness until the very end when you get to it. And this idea of foreshadowing as a literary device, this isn't something new. This isn't something that just modern authors have used. It's actually found in antiquity. One of the oldest written stories that we have is the epic of Gilgamesh and we actually see foreshadowing in that text we see foreshadowing in ancient Egyptian texts thousands of years before Christ ever came and we see foreshadowing throughout scripture as well so my goal today is to help everyone see a little bit more clearly my goal today is for everyone to hear just a little bit more for every eye to see a little bit more for every heart to be a little bit more soft to Jesus and who he really is There's shadows throughout history and throughout Scripture, and they point to Christ and his work. And while there's many messianic prophecies throughout Scripture, what, the things that people long ago said that the Messiah who was to come would fulfill, I actually don't want to look at those today. I want to look at something a little different, and I want to focus on the big, bigger picture of what represented Christ before he came here on earth, and why his birth that we celebrate in this season, that we celebrate on Christmas Day, why that birth is such an incredible miracle. So if you're taking notes today, the title of my message is God of the Shadows. And I want to ask you a question. Do you think it is any coincidence that the day that we celebrate the birth of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, we would now associate with some chubby dude breaking into your house and leaving presents? By the way, I thought about it when I was writing this. I was curious if Santa was actually guilty of breaking any laws. And I did some research and I found out if you leave out milk and cookies, you are complicit in his breaking and entering and no law has been broken. But if you do not leave out milk and cookies and that guy gets in your house, you may be entitled to legal relief. Just thought I'd let you know. I even looked at, you know, animal trafficking and labor issues at the North Pole. Apparently he's in the clear. Is it any coincidence that the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, defeated sin and death forever, and opened the door for us to have relationship with our Father in heaven, is now associated with some rabbit, some eggs, and a basket filled with candy? Is it any coincidence that the names that that is above all names, that the name at which literally demons shake in terror and feel torment at, is now the easiest swear word that comes out of our mouths. Is it any coincidence that all of those things are true? I don't think it is. You and I have desensitized ourselves to the miraculous. We have commercialized the miraculous. We have desensitized ourselves to the meaning of what this season really points to in so many different ways. The birth of Christ was a miracle. It was a miracle. Even beyond the immaculate conception, it was a miracle. It was something that thousands of years of people waited to see. It was something that generations longed and were waiting for and looked for. Generations died out, never seeing what we celebrate today. It is miraculous. It was waited for. And you and I live in a spiritual reality that thousands of years of humanity wished that they had. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever he does not change that is part of his character that is part of his nature that is one of the reasons why we can put our trust in him because he never changes but when you read the old testament and you read the new testament side by side sometimes it seems like things are just a little bit different it seems like the way that he talks to mankind was a little bit different it seems the way that he interacted with mankind was a little bit different so then it begs the question if he doesn't change then what did see the thing is god himself never changes but the way he relates to us has in the very beginning we were created to have an intimate relationship with our father in heaven there was nothing in between us there was nothing weird there was no hidden agendas there was nothing awkward it wasn't like on thanksgiving when the one relative comes in the door and you're like here we go it was none of this It was perfect, but then sin came, and with sin came some consequences. And Genesis chapter three says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? What's the first thing that we do when sin came? We we felt ashamed. And what do you do when you're shameful? You hide. It's the same the first moment it happened and it's the same straight through today. And notice something. God's walking in the garden and God, God says, where are you? Have you ever gotten in trouble as a kid? Like you broke something and you ran in your head and then your parents found it but you were not by the scene of the crime? What did you hear? Where are you? <laughs> and you might have gotten your first and your middle name which is really bad, right? If you get all three, you're done. This wasn't that moment. Because God could have been like, where are you? I gave you one thing, one thing to do. And now you have screwed up humanity for thousands of years and I got to fix it. Where are you? (laughs) Every parent says amen because you felt that. This is the heart of the father going, guys, where are you? And you know something? God never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to. God always asks a question he needs you to admit the answer to. He needed to highlight what had just happened. God, after this, pronounces judgment on the serpent that deceived the man and the woman and on humanity as a whole. And he says this, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the first shadow of Jesus that was going to come. Her offspring. Do you know that the second that everything went south, God already had a plan? Do you know that the second we screwed up, God saw thousands of years into the future, to Christmas day, he knew the circumstances Jesus would be born, he knew the difficulty that they'd endure, he knew there'd be no room at the end. He knew everything that was going to happen, bam, in a moment, because God is always in control. He always has a plan. Nothing is on accident and nothing is out of his control. But notice something. After he pronounces the judgment, so the judgment of sin means, hey, we don't have this super close relationship anymore. There is now a distance between us because of sin. There is something. Sin gets on us and it's like a veil and it separates us from God, right? So he says, although this is the case, notice what God does. Genesis three twenty-one, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. God met us in our brokenness. God didn't look at them and say, you're dirty, get out of here and figure it out. You have screwed up everything, you cover yourself. The Lord God saw that we had separated ourselves from him and yet he is so good that he turned around and he said, I know you feel dirty. I know you feel ashamed. I know you feel ugly. We can't have the relationship that I want, but I am not gonna leave you exposed. I am going to cover you. It is another shadow pointing to the fact that God would atone for sin, that God would cover sin and that blood would be shed for us. And it was in this moment when God made the garments of skin that sin was atoned for, was covered through the shedding of blood. This set into motion a precedent. If you ever heard that on Law and Order or something like that, it talks about precedent. Things that have happened before that have now established what you're meant to do. This set the precedent for what was going to happen. And then throughout the book of Genesis, actually, and then right after that, God gave him the boot. So now, yes loving father but he said okay now you're going to go and now you're going to work and now you're going to work the field and we see throughout the book of genesis this incredible increasing revelation of god he continues to interact with humanity he continues to lead us he continues to show us what it means to be his children and this leads all the way up to the book of exodus So now we're a couple thousand years into the future after the garden happened. And now we see that Israel, God's people, have been enslaved in Egypt. They've been enslaved for 420 years. Generations have been enslaved. And then God sets a plan in motion. God sets Israel free from Egypt. We saw the 10 plagues come against Pharaoh where God was demonstrating his strength and his power and that nothing could hold on to his children. After the 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally said, uncle, go, get out of here. I don't want him anymore. But then as Israel was escaping, Pharaoh realized what he did. He's like, wait a minute. I just let all my slaves go. Who's gonna build my stuff? I can't do that. I gotta get them back. So he chases them. And we see this miraculous moment where Moses slams his staff into the ground. The Red Sea parts Israel comes through the Red Sea and out on the other side. And what does the Red Sea do? It comes back together and it engulfs the things that were trying to chase them and the things that were trying to ensnare them. We saw as Israel was then led through the wilderness... They were disobedient, a a journey that should have taken three days. It took 40 years. And yet God was faithful, even in their disobedience. After he saved them miraculously, God was still faithful. He still led them. He still fed them and he still protected them. It was while they were out wandering in the in the desert, that the law of Moses came. The law came through Moses. So God gave Moses the law as they were wandering. And this law was given through revelation and through a one-on-one encounter. And God established the rules, basically. And part of the law came was the sacrificial system, what had to be sacrificed in order to atone for sin. And there was a process to this. It wasn't a one-and-done type of thing. The high priest would be on the outside. The priest would have to make a sacrifice on the outer courts outside on an altar. And then he would have to go into the center part of the tent or the temple. And in that center part of the temple, there was two spaces. There was a holy place, and then there was a thick, thick veil. And on the inside was called the holy of holies. Now, when I say thick veil... I am not talking about a veil like when you think on a bride, right? Something gentle and transparent. I'm talking about like a theater curtain. You ever go to a high school and like on the high school stage, that thing that's like this thick and you can smack somebody with it and they fall over? One of those things. And the priest had to cover himself the right way. He had to enter in the right way. He had to make a blood sacrifice again. And he had to go into the Holy of Holies. And, And the Holy of Holies was called the Ark of the Covenant. And he had to put blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And only then, and if everything had been done right, and he was cleansed, would the presence of God come and rest. And then only he could make intercession on behalf of us. That veil, that thickness, represented the unapproachability to God, except anyone but the high priest. Sin came and screwed everything up. It separated us from the Lord. God has been faithful. God has always been with us. God has always led us. And then God showed us a pattern of what was to come. God showed us a shadow of what was to come. God gave us this sacrificial system so that somehow we could still get into his presence. But guess what? No animal was perfect. No animal could live up to the standard of perfection because God is loving, but God is just, and God is righteous. Nothing was perfect. So then out of the shadows comes our Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter eight, it says this. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not Jesus came and was the perfect fulfillment of the shadow of what we saw before. Jesus came and in his body represented the temple. In his body represented the process in which we were trying so desperately for thousands of years to get reconciled to our God in heaven. Colossians 2, 16 to 17 says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Substance in that word means reality. It means the stuff that I can touch. It is not a shadow. It is not a figment of the imagination. It is not even a copy of something that wasn't the original. It is the original reality. The substance belongs to Christ. So not only do we see these shadows, but Jesus himself showed up a couple times in the Old Testament. Jesus came and interacted with mankind in different moments. Genesis chapter 18. Jesus came and spoke to Abraham as a man. Came in, spoke to him in the tent, and gave him wisdom about what was to come in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 32, Jesus came and he wrestled with Jacob all night long. And he showed us about the fervency in prayer that we need. And in the book of Daniel, we see the instance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Jewish men who were in a different nation who refused to bow down and worship any other idol. They got themselves thrown into a furnace and the temperature was cranked up to the point where they would have been incinerated instantly. And yet, when people looked inside, they saw that the ropes that had bon- had them in bondage had been burned away and they saw them dancing with another man dancing with them. Jesus shows us that he rejoices through all of the trials because he's in control of everything. So, Jesus showed up. Jesus' birth was miraculous. He was immaculately conceived. And quite honestly, at this time period in history, the fact that Mary even made it full term and didn't die during delivery was incredible. She had no midwife. She had no one assisting her. And she was out in a barn with animals and everything like that. The fact that this just happened was a miracle. But it was no accident. It was by design. In Isaiah chapter nine, we see where the prophet thousands of years before Christ would point and look towards what was to come. And he says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then our, one of our key texts for the series, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. It was almost like Isaiah was standing in the shadow of the future. He saw this bright light at a distance. If you've ever driven on a rainy night and you see very far away a light coming at you, you can kind of sometimes see the rays and everything like that. If you've got astigmatism, it's easier for you. It was almost like Isaiah was seeing that. He saw this thing in the future, and he's trying to tell us what he sees. He sees a wonderful counselor. When you say counselor, we're not talking about Jesus sitting on a chair and you laying on a couch crying and telling him your problems counselor in this instance is an advisor to royalty we have a wonderful counselor the one who can advise correctly and with wisdom he is a mighty god there is nothing that compares to him there is nothing that can shake him there is nothing that can rattle him there is nothing that can distract him and there is nothing that makes him tired he is mighty he is our everlasting father his reign will never end and he cares for us as a father would And he is the Prince of Peace. We don't just celebrate a baby born in a manger this season. We celebrate the King being born. Why is it so easy for us to watch movies like Lord of the Rings? And when you see people say, my King, it's like, yes, my King. You can feel it with that. And yet when we talk about the King of Kings, there's a disconnect. We've desensitized ourselves to his power, his majesty, and his splendor. He is the king of kings. That is what we celebrate this season. We don't just celebrate a baby in a manger. We celebrate the beginning of sin's defeat. We don't just celebrate a baby in a manger. We celebrate eternity coming ever closer to humanity again. You know, there's this great movie, called a song called Mary, Did You Know? And it asks many rhetorical questions of Mary. Did she know that her son would heal a blind man? And as I was writing this, I had to think to myself, did she realize that the baby she was holding was the temple of God? And when babies are born, they have such soft skin. They're so cute, and they've got chubby little cheeks. And with my kids, I used to like to take the outside of my fingers and just kind of caress their face because it's so soft and it's so chunky and you just want to pinch it but I wonder if when she was touching his face for the first time, I wonder if she realized that that was the veil that was going to be torn so that God wouldn't be far away from us anymore so that we could be reconciled to him. That veil that used to separate his presence was about to be broken for us. So, why do we have such a disconnect from the miraculous? Why do we have such a disconnect from what this season means? It's because you and I have become quite content with living in the shadows. We have been quite content with living with the shadow of what reality is. You and I have become content with social media instead of being in true community. You and I have become content with texting and emailing rather than true relationship. Because it's easier and it's quicker and I don't have to talk to you. You and I have become content with posting and commenting rather than true conversation. Can we begin to actually talk and recognize how we're different rather than just saying our opinion? Because no one really cares about your opinion. People care when you care. We've embraced the shadow of convenience rather than that of sacrifice. I can get anything in this world in 24 hours at my doorstep. I get mad when my iPhone doesn't load quick enough have I forgotten what it means to actually give? You and I have embraced the shadow of self-gratification rather than generosity. We'd rather feel good about what we give than actually truly asking ourselves, are we being generous? We're content with checking off a box rather than saying, Lord, what would you have me do? Living in the shadows means we never have to confront the difficult. It means we can push off the things that are challenging, settling for a shadow of what we were meant to carry We desensitize ourselves to conviction and to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you know something? When your body doesn't get fed, it lets you know. If you fasted with us this year 10 times for three days straight, your body was mad at you. When your body doesn't get what it needs, it gets loud. I get hangry. People that are close to me know if I'm not having a good day, feed me, it might get better. But you know what happens with your spirit? Your spirit doesn't scream. Your spirit doesn't give you a headache. Your spirit gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And when you live in the shadow, you get to a point where you don't even realize it anymore because you've lost your sensitivity to the miraculous. And maybe you're here today and on the inside, you're kind of like Kevin's house. Things look like they're in order. Looks like there's light. Looks like there's life. The reality is that that's just shadow, that's just smoke and mirrors, hiding the fact that on the inside you're still truly dead. The good news is that our great high priest has come, born of a virgin, died and rose again, and defeated sin once and for all time so that you didn't have to. So that you didn't have to struggle but desperately trying to achieve righteousness when no sacrifice was perfect enough. He did it for you. And it says in Hebrews 9, But when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, that is not of his, this creation, he entered once And for all, into the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to tell you this morning, stop living in the shadows. Embrace the substance. Embrace the reality of what is available to you. Because you're not home alone. In Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul is encouraging the Jewish people about the reality of what Jesus did, about how they're not separated anymore. He's going through this motion showing them that. And then he says this, And he who came and preached peace to you, who were far off and peace to you, who were near Jews and Gentiles. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You and I have a home. You and I have a dwelling place where the deepest, most important corner, the foundation, the cornerstone is Christ. It is built on truth. It is built on love. It is built on the work of the gospel. And together, you and I occupy this home that God has built. When we recognize that we've been separated from him by our sin and that there is no other way to come home, that is when we come home to our family. God covered mankind when they had fallen. God is mighty to save. He destroyed Pharaoh and his armies while setting his children free. He is a good Father. He led them, He nourished them, and He guided them all throughout the wilderness. God showed Himself more and more throughout the centuries, leading His people on a path of redemption. God came once and for all on the day we celebrate this season on Christmas Day to set free the captives, to give sight to the blind, and to bind up the brokenhearted. God came to save you, to forgive you of your sins, and to raise you up into His household. So my question for you today is, will you believe it? Will you stop living in the shadow? Will you recognize that you are separated from him? And that on this day, the savior of the world came to save you, to reconcile you when you couldn't do it on your own, and to put your trust in Him? Hebrews 11 says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of the things not seen. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me this morning. Faith is the substance. We've said that word a couple times today, substance. It's the reality. It is tangible. It is real. And there's some of you in this place and some of you online where faith has never actually been there. It has been absent. And I pray that today in this moment, the Holy Spirit would be sparking alive the faith inside of you, the saving faith to recognize that you need Jesus. That there is nothing you could do on your own to earn it but that him coming into this world live living his perfect life and allowing his body to be broken for us is the reason why you can spend eternity with him in heaven and so in a moment i'm going to lead us in a prayer and it is not the prayer that saves you it is not the words that save you it is the recognition in your heart of everything that i've just said so if you are feeling drawn right now, if you feel that conviction on the inside and you know that you need to put your faith in Jesus, repeat these words after us and in your heart, surrender all that you have to them. Let's say this all together. Lord, Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I am broken and I could never be perfect enough. I believe that you lived a perfect life that you died and that you rose again that you defeated sin that you defeated death and that you brought me home I make you Lord of my life I surrender all that I have to you breathe in me your Holy Spirit give me more faith love you Lord jesus name amen so with your eyes closed and your heads bowed if you made that decision in this place today if you felt drawn and brought home and you know you were part of god's family one two three can i just see your hand slipped up in the air i see that hand back there my friend i see these hands over here thank you thank you i see all these hands in the front thank you lord thank you Lord. thank you Jesus I thank you Father God that you came I thank you Father God that we don't have to live in a shadow of reality but that we have reality available to us I pray over every single person that eyes would be open that ears would hear that hearts would be stretched and that faith would come where faith has never existed that it came today thank you Lord where faith has been but it's been dead I pray that it would be breathed on again and where faith is present I pray that it would be increased I pray that this season would be a season of a harvest for you I pray that this would be a season of healing, of restoration, of Father God. You moving in such visible, powerful ways that we look beyond the trees, the stockings, the Santas, the everything. And we see our Savior, our good counselor, and our loving Father. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.